the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dave Ellsworth Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. Welcome, everyone. This morning, 6.06 in the morning, it's still dark out. Dave is taking a well-deserved two days off. I will be filling in for him uh, both today and tomorrow. And as usual, uh, as is always the case on the Dave Ellswick Show, we will be discussing topics of the day, important topics, and uh, we welcome your input. So let's get right down to it. Uh, I've got some articles that I want to go through and then provide some thoughts on. I warn you in advance, the articles are often from the New York Times. New York Times one of the things that we will discuss is how the New York Times is no longer an unbiased reporting agency. And by that, I mean, look, I've been reading the New York Times for for probably 40 years. And no one has ever alleged that the New York Times was a conservative paper. There was always a liberal flavor to the New York Times. And you knew that when you purchased it. But what you didn't see was outright pandering outright bias it's hard to strike exactly down the middle it's walking the tightrope so inevitably if a paper is made up largely of liberals you will get some flavor of that liberalism and if you understand that and you read that paper and you filter that out that's okay but when they become a flak propaganda machine for the left and the ultra left no less that's not a newspaper, right? That's a, that's a rag. That is, as I just referenced, a propaganda machine. So I've already sort of gone off on a tangent here because I was telling you that I am going to start reading to you some aspects of articles from the New York Times, but I felt forced to uh, bring up a topic that we will have later in the show that is the inherent bias in the New York Times, Uh, Because when I read these articles, I will try, I will try to filter out some of this overwhelming leftist bias in the New York Times. But because it's so overwhelming, I have no choice but to tell you about it, uh, to tell you the source of the information that I'm providing. So you, too, can act uh, as a filter to ensure that the information is not overwhelmingly biased. We'll do our best together, and hopefully we'll get through it. The first article, I find rather distressing, the underlying facts, and you'll hear why. Canada approves vaccine and could start shots next week. First paragraph, Canada on Wednesday became only the second Western country to approve a coronavirus vaccine a week after Britain did so, and a day before U.S. regulators will meet to consider taking that step. That's the crux of the article that I want to discuss. The first sentence and not even all of it. So what's so important about that first sentence? Canada has approved the vaccine. Great. 
And Great Britain has approved the, the vaccine. Great. The more we can get people vaccinated, the quicker we'll get rid of this coronavirus uh, that came from uh, China uh, in Wuhan. So what's the problem? That's not the problem, folks. The problem is you saw buried in that first sentence, and I don't mean this uh, to reflect a bias, but you saw buried in that sentence a day before U.S. regulators will meet to consider taking that step. Why is the U.S. third in line? Why is the U.S. not the first to have approved a vaccine made by an American company? That's my question to you. And the answer is as much in that first sentence as is that question. The answer is U.S. regulators will meet on Thursday to discuss bureaucracy, folks, bureaucracy. And regulators face the, the dilemma, shall we say, that all bureaucrats do. If I do something too quickly and it doesn't go well, I'll get blamed. And if I drag my feet until all the dots, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed, then I won't get blamed. What won't you get blamed for? All of the additional deaths that will undoubtedly come about because we are third in line. America's the bronze medal. At best, by the way, we'll see if somebody else sneaks in. By the way, I'm not even counting the Chinese uh, vaccine, which is not as effective, and I don't trust anything that comes out of China. I don't, I most assuredly screen all my food products and don't buy food products made in China. I, to the best of my knowledge, don't buy medicines made in China. No, I don't, I don't trust those products coming from China. And I'm also not counting the Russian vaccine because I don't trust the Russian government for telling the truth. I don't trust the Chinese government for telling the truth. So they say it's safe and effective. Maybe, maybe not. So we're third in line amongst the Western countries because we have a bureaucracy that's more impressed and more concerned about covering their own behinds than they are saving the lives of hardworking uh, Americans who are either on the, the front lines or they're in nursing homes or they're elderly or whatever other condition makes them at high risk for getting COVID. If you're worried about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, well, give it to people whose risk profile better supports taking that risk. Right. In other words, let's say by analogy, folks, you're dying of cancer and there's a cancer medicine out there that is unknown as to how effective it is. Well, I wouldn't take it now because I'm, uh, uh, I don't have cancer. So why would I take something that could cause me harm if I don't have something to cure? But if I know I'm dying of cancer and we know this diagnosis, and there's something that's a shot in the dark, but it's not make-believe. It's not like what happened in the 70s, I believe. People went down to Mexico, and they were offering this just nonsensical drug that was a derivative of, um, I forget what, of, of, of a poison, of a toxin. 
it did nothing. It was it was make believe. No, I'm talking about something that has a real scientific potential of working. And by the way, why, moreover, is it the case that the Canadian regulators and the British regulators got this done? Do they have less stringent regulations than we do? All the lefties point to the Canadian and English health system as what they want because it's socialized. That's got nothing to do with whether you determine medicine is safe or not. But if that's such a great system, why can't these lefties in government get it done here? That's what I'd like to know. This is a serious question. Every day that goes by, someone catches COVID and someone dies of COVID. This won't cure the person who already has it, but this will prevent some people from catching it and dying. Every day you delay that, you are killing people. But the bureaucrats don't care. The bureaucrats get paid no matter what. Oh, we've scheduled a meeting for schedule meeting. Get on the horn. If you have the data, they have a scheduled meeting. What are they waiting somebody uh, for somebody to get back from Cancun? Scheduled meeting. Get on the horn right now. Why weren't they uh, on a Zoom call three days ago? Did they not have the data? Well, we need the bureaucrats, you know, they need to read it in between the times that they're going out to these fancy restaurants in California with the governor of California. I don't know if they're doing that. But what I do know is that there is a delay in America to get the vaccine that did not take place in Canada and did not take place in Great Britain. Moreover, They have bureaucrats, too. So there's some delay there. Yet, what do we see here in America? A greater delay. This is is the inevitable outcome of our overwhelmingly bureaucratic government. That people die every day because the bureaucracy is slow and huge. And yet every day... They're collecting your taxes, collecting tax dollars from you. Look at your paycheck. Look at the combination of state taxes, income taxes I'm talking about, local taxes, federal income taxes, federal FICA taxes. Then remember you're paying taxes on your property, whether or not you rent or own, because if you rent, it's part of your rent. Never uh, put aside that you're also paying sales taxes now permanently increased in Arkansas because uh, the population voted for a disingenuous amendment to the Constitution increasing our taxes. And I blame those that suggested that. And I also find fault with those who were not informed enough to vote against that bill. So. What's the state of affairs in the United States right now? Today, today, you can't get vaccinated for COVID. Go to Canada, you could. Go to Great Britain, you could. Now, does that sound like we are a leader in this world? Or does it sound like we're a follower in this world? Sounds to me like we're a follower. And I find great fault with the bureaucracy that has resulted in this outcome. The present administration, the Trump administration, has done a great job of 
quickening the process to create a vaccine by years, as you likely know, by years. And yet bottleneck in the bureaucracy before it actually gets approved and distributed. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And you, Dave's audience, that are listening to this show are made up of a, of a variety of people, including folks who have increased risk of catching COVID because either you're of a certain age or maybe you have diabetes or some other um, factor that contributes to the danger of when you catch it, the danger of uh, how risky catching it is. If you're 25 years old and you have no other illness, no illnesses and you catch COVID, you'll be fine. It'll be a bad flu and you'll be fine. Overwhelmingly, 99 point and then numerous numbers thereafter percent chance that in relatively short order, you will be absolutely fine. But not everybody falls into that category. I don't fall into that category. I ain't 25 no more. So, why don't we have this vaccine? Because of bureaucrats. So next time you look around and you hear some bureaucrat, or I should say, rather, some government official saying, we need to raise taxes. By the way, I'm going to get to that later. We need to raise taxes because we need to supply this and we need to do that. And say to yourself, no, no, we don't. We don't need government doing half the things that leftists think government should be doing all right Robert, do let's yep. take a break um we got to uh, get to some news and some into some traffic ua literoc law professor robert steinbach is filling in for dave today as dave is on a weekend vacation in uh, universal studios florida i'm very jealous of him for that uh, but we'll be right back after the traffic and the news but first a couple of brief messages from dave himself this is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Thursday morning at 624. We've got uh, but a few minutes before the hard break at 630. And so I wanted to uh, take a diversion for a moment and talk about some cultural issues to share with you, to invite you, and to welcome you. And that is tonight is the beginning of the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is the festival of lights. And what does this holiday celebrate? When the Jews lived in Israel, their biblical, historical country, given to them by God, by the way. Uh, so when you hear in pop leftist culture the debate about Jews living in Israel, remember, it's not a function of some uh, body uh, like the U.N., uh, although they approved it. It's not a function of whether some liberal leftist government in Europe decides that Jews live in Israel. It's a function of what God decreed. You don't want to believe in God? Knock yourself out. But this is what has occurred. Israel is the biblical country given to the Jews by God. Hey, all are welcome doesn't change that fact. So when Jews were living in Israel uh, under the, the Greek uh, uh, control, uh, they uh, were f fighting with the Greeks. And during this fight, uh, the, the Greeks had destroyed uh, um, the temple or parts of the temple. They destroyed the oil that was used to light the 
the candle, so to speak, in the temple. The ordinary candle, not ordinary, but the, the primary uh, candle that was used in the uh, temple uh, in devotion of God. Uh, and remember back then, candle, so to speak, was really an oil lamp, right? You put oil and you put a wick in and you light the wick and the wick sucks up the oil and it lights the area. Well, when the Jews won this battle and they came upon the oil that was there used to light the lamp, uh, it was sacramental oil. So it was put into containers. It was blessed by the rabbis and sealed to demonstrate that it wasn't contaminated because you can't use contaminated oil uh, for holy purposes. And only one uh, label, one seal, I should say, was not broken. And that was enough for one day of the lamp. And so the Jews used this oil in the lamp, and instead of lasting the one day, it lasted eight full days until they could resupply that oil. That oil being olive oil, by the way. And so we celebrate that. Uh, that God intervened and allowed that lamp to be lit for eight days with one day worth of oil. That's the, the miracle. That's the intervention, the direct and obvious intervention by God, and that's why we call it a miracle. Because those obvious and direct interventions, uh, we call them miracles. God's hand is generally more subtle. Tonight... Uh, it will be the first night that we light that candle, and there's a public lighting on the corner of, bear with me, folks, I've got to now check again, um, on the corner of, oh my goodness, here it is, uh, on the corner of Chanel and Bowman, on the corner of Chanel and Bowman, there is a public lighting of a giant menorah, and there'll be a lighting every night for eight nights, uh, every night except tomorrow night, because tomorrow night's the beginning of the Sabbath. It will be a different time. Every other night, 5.30. So if around 5.30 you have an opportunity to stop by or even just drive by the corner of Chanel and Bowman, do it. Look at the, the lighting of the menorah. Give a little uh, horn honk or flash your lights uh, to welcome in the beginning of Hanukkah and each day thereafter. So remember, tonight and every other night except tomorrow night, 5.30, corner of Chanel and Bowman. Tomorrow night, 3.15, tomorrow afternoon, really, 3.15, because We've got to get it done uh, and go home before the beginning of the Sabbath so as to prepare for the Sabbath. So one more time, and then I'll move on. At the corner of Chanel and Bowman, uh, starting tonight and for eight nights, uh, including tonight thereafter, uh, there will be a public lighting of a giant menorah. Uh, and you don't have to be Jewish, needless to say, to participate in it. As you know, Jesus was, was Jewish, and there are some Messianic Jews that celebrate the Jewish holidays. But even if you're not uh, of that... Um, All right, uh, Robert, not, let's yep. take a break. We're coming up on let's the news. Here we go. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave both today and tomorrow. Dave is on a well-deserved vacation down in Florida. 
And so we're going to turn back to the latest news, as we always do. We had a little break. I'm going to repeat that uh, information, by the way, for you later in the show about the Hanukkah candle lighting uh, taking place here in Little Rock. Everyone is welcome uh, of all faiths and and no faiths as, as well. Uh, but we'll get we'll repeat that uh, throughout the show for those who are interested. Back to the news of the day. Surprise. Surprise, Hunter Biden reveals feds are investigating his taxes. Now, there's so much to unpack here. It's remarkable. First of all, Hunter Biden reveals, really? Really? Hunter Biden reveals because he knew it was coming out. But put aside the process. Oh, and how does he reveal it? Through the transition team. He doesn't reveal it himself. Through the transition team. Wait, I thought... I thought he was unrelated to them. I thought he was his own person and he was not being influenced by the transition team and vice versa. But yet the release literally comes from the Biden transition team, which continues, by the way, I've highlighted this on my Twitter account at Rob Steinbuck, continues to violate federal law. Take a look every time you see Joe Biden uh, reading from a teleprompter and messing up like the names of the people he's nominating to candidate uh, to uh, cabinet positions. Did you notice the latest was uh, Becerra from California? He couldn't pronounce the, the name of the guy that he was nominating. I don't care if you can't, if you're reading a name and you don't know how to pronounce it, that's perfectly understandable. But that, that reflects what fact that you have no idea who the guy is. The difficulty, my name happens to end with an H, not with a K, because it's spelled in the original German. Well, so some people uh, inadvertently say Steinbach or Booch or something like that. Okay, because when they read it, they may not know. But if you know who I am, if you were a student of mine, if you hear me on the radio where Dave constantly repeats my name as part of an introduction, or I do when I'm filling in, for Dave, I say Steinbach. Well, you know then, my name is pronounced Steinbach. So even if you happen to read it later, you wouldn't mispronounce it because you know the name. But Joe Biden has no idea who he's even appointing. So that's why he mispronounces the name. He's reading that name for the first time. Oh, who's that guy? Oh, I nominated that guy? Oh, good. But th- there's nothing new about the notion that Joe Biden is not on his game, that there is a cognitive deficit there. Uh, But people were okay with that. By the way, a couple of my friends who are liberal and who voted for Joe Biden conceded that, oh, well, for sure, his cognitive abilities are not what they used to be. They still preferred him over Trump. And for that, I say, okay, as long as you know what you're getting into. But most of the leftists deny there's any issue at all. And obviously, that's a lie. That's just a clear lie. And speaking of lies, we get back to the topic, which is that Hunter Biden reveals that the feds are investigating his taxes. When the Trump campaign raised the improprieties of Hunter Biden, the response by Joe Biden was, Russia, Russia, hat tip, by the way, of course, to Tucker who not only uses that phrasing and that um, sort of uh, intonation, but was one of the first 
maybe I was amongst them, I don't recall, one of the first to recognize that all the left does has done since uh, President Trump was probably nominated, if not elected, was to falsely accuse the Republicans of being in bed with Russians. And so when Trump aptly raised the content of the emails from Hunter Biden, uh, in which he described how Joe Biden was intimately involved in the improper deal making by Hunter Biden with foreign governments and foreign companies. Uh, what was the response? That's Russian disinformation. It's really remarkable. To this day, notwithstanding that the, um, what's the, what they call it, the blue label, gold label, I don't even know, commission established to investigate Russian interference with the election, demonstrated that there was no Russian interference, excuse me, no Russian collusion with the president. Yes, it was Russian interference. By the way, not dramatic, but nonetheless, sure. Is that new? No. Here's the Russian interference, by the way. They bought some Facebook ads. Certain other things, too. Okay. Should should we be pleased by that? No. Is it um, significant? No. Uh, is it, is it new? No, it may be increasing because of technology, right? Of course, before there was Facebook, there was no Russian, uh, disinformation on Facebook, but there was Russian disinformation. Sure. Does Russia try to influence elections in other countries? By the way, the same way we in other countries try to sure. And is there a bit of a double standard that when we do it, nobody seems to cry foul, but when Russia does it here, we cry foul? Probably. And nonetheless, put aside what we do, is it good or bad? Should we be displeased by the Russian intervention in our elections? Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we sanction them? Absolutely. But should we think that it's, uh, particularly in 2016, was significant? No. No. And most importantly, the claims by the left were not that the Russians tried to spread disinformation. The claims by the left were that the Russians were colluding, or vice versa, to be clear, that the Trump campaign w- was colluding with the Russians. Not true. Not true. And the commission demonstrated, the Mueller commission, to be clear, established that. And you remember what Swalwell, and don't worry, we'll get to uh, Swalwell in a minute. minute. But you remember what Swalwell and others and uh, um, Schiff said? Well, the Trump uh, administration, or excuse me, the Trump campaign, Trump Jr., Donald Trump Jr., met with some Russian lady who was pitching something about adoptions. And when she got there, she really started to pitch something about doing away with sanctions against Russia. And as it turns out, she was working for the Russian government. Okay, so let me see if I can unpack this. The Russian government sent one of their lobbyists undercover to the um, 
uh, to the campaign and they told the campaign uh, we they told the campaign they wanted to do one thing. And in reality, they were campaigning to undo sanctions against the Russian government. Yeah. Yeah. How is that collusion? Well, you see, you see, Don Jr. met with the Russians. Yeah, but Don Jr. didn't know that they were uh, working for the Russian government. And apparently, by the way, when Don Jr. met with them, as it turns out, he basically told them, "Mm, this is not what we thought we were going to be meeting about, so we're not particularly interested. But yet, for years, the left has been saying there's Russian collusion, even after the Mueller report said no. And to this day, you haven't heard the left, you haven't heard MSNBC, you haven't heard Rachel Maddow, you haven't heard Schiff, you haven't heard Swalwell apologize for their false accusations. But then when the Trump campaign this election cycle points out that Hunter Biden is involved with illicit behavior overseas, sure enough, they pull out the old playbook. And so what's what's our conclusion from all of this? It's not Russian disinformation we should be concerned about. It's leftist disinformation, leftist disinformation that falsely accuses Americans of being complicit with Russians when those Americans either are not or in the most recent incident are pointing out actually valid concerns about, in this case, Hunter Biden and his relationship with foreign governments and his relationship with Joe Biden. That's. What's going on here? And the press sequestered this information. They repeatedly said in the uh, in the media, these are untrue allegations. These are debunked allegations. So the press is doing the handiwork for the Biden campaign. But we've known this throughout, right? That the press has been repeatedly doing the handiwork for their chosen political campaign. In, in part, right, because they realized that at some point they were becoming, um, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? I apologize. They were doing the bidding of the the left, and they realized that the only way they're going to get their candidate of choice elected would be to basically be a third arm of the campaign. And so now that the campaign is over, guess what? They report that Hunter Biden is being investigated for his taxes. Now, where was the pre-filing, the pre-release by the DOJ Uh, um, uh, reporting on this. Why is this reporting coming from Hunter Biden? If the press is truly an investigative press, why does this information come from the source of the um, investigation? Meaning Hunter Biden, the subject, I should say, the subject of the investigation. Why is that? That means the press haven't been doing their job. If you have to wait for the person who's being investigated to tell you he's being investigated, then the press hasn't done their job, have they? 
They All were right, searching Robert, around. Let's pause yep. right there. Uh, we have let's to take it. a break. Uh, when we come back, Chris Corbett is on the line. Uh, he's another Fantastic. one of our legal es- experts. Uh, we, they'll be talking, so we'll be right back. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave both today and tomorrow. Tune in uh, and you can hear me and Chris Corbett, who has joined us now. As you know, Chris Corbett is an attorney. He's an engineer. He lives in the Conway area. He works, well, throughout Arkansas, but uh, perhaps primarily in the Conway and Little Rock area. Uh, and he joins us regularly here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, before we get to you, Chris, and I want you to talk about this story that you just sent me about Stand Your Ground and how critical it is that we pass it this coming legislative session, uh, which we are effectively in in the sense, meaning early introduction of bills is happening as we speak, and then the session starts in the beginning of January. Just I want to put a bow on what I was talking about before the break, in part because I stumbled a little bit in the middle. That's right. It's rare, but it happens. Uh, and that simply is that Hunter Biden announces that he is under investigation uh, for tax fraud or some other tax impropriety, I should say. I'm not sure it's an allegation of fraud, albeit it might. Uh, and that's the first the news picks is picks this up because the news, the media was complicit with the Biden campaign in falsely alleging that the allegations against Hunter Biden were part of a Russian conspiracy, Russia, 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 as Tucker Apley likes to say, Tucker Carlson, of course, from Fox News. And in reality, it was there was no Russian conspiracy the same way there was no Russian conspiracy between the Trump campaign in 2016, as determined by the Mueller commission, but nonetheless, never retracted by the left, never retracted by the Dems, never retracted by Nancy Pelosi, who continues to say most disingenuously, it's really disgusting. Well, he was um, impeached. That'll never go away. Excuse me. An impeachment is the equivalent of an indictment. And if you are indicted by a grand jury and then tried and found not guilty, guess what? You're not guilty. That's what counts, meaning that the impeachment or the indictment was not substantiated. You are, therefore, innocent. From time to time, I hear cops or prosecutors say, well, he was proven not guilty, not innocent. Excuse me. Our system quite literally says you are innocent until proven guilty. Was he proven guilty? No. Then what are you? A third grader can answer this question, right, Chris? Then what are you? Innocent. Absolutely. Innocent. I'm sorry I missed the discussion, Rob. No um, worries. Well, you know, so Chris, tell there's us. an Arkansas connection to, uh, to Hunter Biden's um, non-payment of taxes. Uh, Tell me about it. His 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 child that he had born with an Arkansas resident. Uh, she sued him for child support, and I watched that case that that case closely out of Batesville, thinking that Hunter Biden was going to have to produce an affidavit of financial means because in child support cases, the father has to produce an affidavit of financial means so the judge can set child support. Now, what's mm-hmm. interesting is that that was settled. He was for, he was um, supposed to be deposed on 
um, right before the election, and they settled it somehow. I'm so interested. Surprise, to surprise. See how surprise. They Somebody it. wrote a big yeah, check, really? Really? Yeah, yeah. And now, guess mm-hmm. what? He didn't have to produce his financial records. So mm-hmm. I think, no, don't let facts get in the way of your opinion, right? Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Don't, don't trip now, up on it, any facts. Without besmirching the character of Hunter or anybody else affiliated with him, do I recall correctly that the uh, his uh, baby mama um, uh, worked in a uh, a club of uh, uh, as they call it gentlemanly uh, um, uh, display? Oh no, you know I, I don't know. I think that was some of the uh, press trying to discredit her. I think she's a good-looking woman, and um, it's awesome. Oh, is that right? Her and, not true. Yeah, I don't think – I'm not so sure. It could have been like a Twin Peaks or a Hooters, but I'm not so I sure. see. I yeah. see. Yeah, I those are not. a strip club. Yeah, I don't I know. So. That is interesting, though, how you see the press, yet again, right. shilling for uh, Biden and the Biden family, right? That's exactly what happened. Who – you cannot fault a mother that made the choice – to have the baby, and then she needs a little financial support. Come on, man. Well, it's not only it's not whether or not she needs the financial support. It's she's entitled to financial support. That is, exactly. if you're a father of a baby, uh, that's in in Hunter's case, that's more than the seven and a half minutes that he was involved in making that baby. That's that's right. That's you're right. Res, you're you're responsible. Uh, for ongoing uh, obligations regarding that child. Sorry, that's how it that's works. Right. Rob, you when you said that, I have stood in front, and I hate I've lost a few cases. Every good attorney has. I have stand. I have stood next to several fathers, next in front of a judge, and making a plea, uh, Your Honor, my client, the father, cannot pay child support if he's in jail. You know what the judge says? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sorry. Too bad. I gave you that chance at the last hearing three months ago. And you don't mm-hmm. have a job yet. So guess what? You get to go to jail for not paying child support. Oh, so they go to jail for not paying child support, go, even though they have no income coming in. They go to jail. Yes. Well, I, I don't know anything about this other than what you just described. But I do have a problem accept- that... Yeah. When you have an obligation like that, and it is an obligation, but if you, if it can't be met, if you're not working, so no fault of your own, well, then right. there needs to be some accommodation for that. There, you know what? And it's so funny. You, you can be a judge, Rob. The judge ha! says, you know what? I, I'm going to give you a chance to go make a living and help support this baby. I'm going to give mm-hmm. you 90 days to find a job, and you better come in here with a job and tell me you're making money. Or else I'm putting and you in jail. They give them an ultimatum. All right, y'all. Let's continue yeah. this conversation um, uh, a little later in the show. Uh, coming up next, we have Kevin Williamson. Uh, we'll be talking to him about his new book called Big White Ghetto. Uh, that is all coming up on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.
This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling for Dave both today and tomorrow. Uh, on the air with us is, of course, Chris Corbett, attorney in the Conway Little Rock area, practicing throughout the state of Arkansas, also a professional engineer, and his legal practice overlaps those categories, meaning he does a lot of engineering law, patent law, but constitutional law and other litigation as well, personal injury law. And joining us for about 15 minutes until our next break is Kevin Williamson, an author of what sounds like a very interesting book. And Kevin, instead of me trying to describe your book, please, if you can, at the beginning of this interview, tell us a little bit about yourself and then tell us about this very interesting sounding book that you have written. Yeah, my name is uh, Kevin Williamson. I'm a writer for National Review and a columnist for the New York Post. And this book is called Big White Ghetto, and it's a collection of long reported pieces largely having to do with poverty and addiction and things related to uh, those subjects. And um, traveled all over the country from eastern Kentucky to southern California to Texas oil fields and Pennsylvania and other places interviewing people and writing about what's actually going on in a part of the country that doesn't get really covered by that much in the media. Indeed. Kevin, your interest overlaps with one of mine, which is this false claim of so-called white privilege. I Mm. interpret that as a racist claim. That is, because of the color of my skin and the color of anybody's skin who's white, they somehow have certain benefits in society inevitably. I'm not saying certain people aren't better off than other people uh, for a variety of circumstances, but since when is it permissible to say, because of the color of my skin, I, have a cert- I, I inevitably have a certain situation? Nonetheless, by the way, I will tell you, Kevin, I'm first-generation American. My parents came here with $50 in their pocket, and that was it. My dad went, got his high school degree uh, in the States after emigrating, got his college degree, got his master's degree. My mother worked, to, uh, as my father did while he was studying, both of which to put him through all all of this education and to raise a family at the same time when, by the way, my mother came over here uh, and had uh, my older sister uh, a year uh, at best later. Uh, so uh, they were also immediately raising a family. Uh, but somehow we were the subject of white privilege. I grew up in a lower working class neighborhood, largely Italian and Irish neighborhood. Uh, and uh, um, w- the house I grew up in uh, had was so poorly insulated, so poorly built that during the wintertime, my mother opened the electric oven and heated the house with the electric oven. So well, comment on the white privilege that I and the many people that you've investigated have so-called benefited from, if you will. Well, yeah, I think white privilege is kind of a silly term. It doesn't really mean anything, but um, it assumes the existence of something which I'm not quite sure exists, which is this category called white people. Um, There's a big difference between the way you live if you are 
a white family in Haverford, Pennsylvania, and both of your parents went to college, and your grandparents went to college, and you make $800,000 a year, versus if you are a white family in Nowsey County, Kentucky, which is the poorest place in the United States, and you are on welfare, and you haven't had a job for most of your adult life, and neither of most people you know. And it's a very different kind of life between those two things. So I think that um, you know, the idea of white privilege and intersectionality and all the rest of this sort of stuff it's essentially just a culture war mumbo-jumbo. It's words about words. They don't really refer to anything in reality, I don't think. Well, indeed, that's really an insightful commentary, I believe, because you hear so many on the left repeating the, these terms like a mantra, and then when you ask them a question, there's no there there. There's no explanation yeah. there. There's nothing behind the veil of this terminology. And if you look back, as you know, no doubt, to the way the Soviet Union operated and all of these post-Soviet revolution communist countries operated, it was all about redefining language without any substance, just making these broad claims about individuals and society in general so that people would fall in line with the false dogma. And I see a very similar pattern, uh, meaning an identical pattern, being employed by the new left, the left that we have in America today. Uh, so well, I, I think what you're running into on that is, um, is uh, it's a pretty common social phenomenon, which is that the policymaking conversation tends to be dominated by people like me, people who are good with words, people who are clever uh, about language. And so we end up elevating these conversations about language to being the ultimate thing as if they were reality. So it's not as though race doesn't matter in the United States. Of course, race matters in the United States. But the thing is, there are lots of other stuff that matters as well. And race is not this determinative factor in people's lives. And so you get this weird thing of you know, people whose parents uh, – went to college and who went to Ivy League universities and make a lot of money themselves lecturing poor people in, say, Magnolia, Arkansas, about their privilege because they happen to be white. It's, it's so true, and I've seen personal examples of this, where uh, individuals who, um, uh, say, are a minority uh, will go out and they grew up um, parents of uh, excuse me, their parents were both well-employed uh, in significant positions, and they grew up in a well-to-do neighborhood in a big house uh, with all of the trappings of what we would call, I dare say, privilege. And they're lecturing, as you say, to uh, folks who happen to be white that they are somehow privileged. And the lecturer was somehow not privileged. And so yeah, privilege... The great, and the great irony of this is that the people who like to talk about diversity have this really simple-minded view of the world that doesn't take into account the actual diversity of American life, which includes questions about education, economic status, class, region. Uh, you know, rural America, which is a lot of what my book is about, is very, very different from urban America, not only because... I write a lot about a lot of poor rural communities, but because they're disconnected. You know, you're not off the interstate. You're off a road that's off a road that's off a road that's off a road. And an hour away from the nearest Walmart and a 45-minute drive from the nearest FedEx drop-off point. So life in a, in a situation like that is really quite different from life in, say, the suburbs of Houston, where middle-class people, upper-middle-class people, and lower-middle-class people live very similar lives in lots of ways. Rural America is very isolated in places, and it's very separate. 
Indeed. That, that, it's such a salient point because then you see in cities like Little Rock, uh, but throughout this country, where there are these preferences given in governmental hiring based on race and race alone, to be clear. Uh, and the claim is, well, these are historically underprivileged groups. There's no doubt about that. But how is someone who's a member of an historically underprivileged group but may or may not be underprivileged individually compared to many of the folks that you have just aptly described? Why should a guy or woman who lives off the road, off the road, off the road from the interstate uh, in a poor environment uh, be disadvantaged when applying to become a fireman in Little Rock compared to someone whose skin color is different, but is either an equal or, in my hypothetical, a better economic and otherwise social condition, why should the latter have an advantage against the former? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, to be clear, this isn't really a book that's about race and racial politics and, and that sort of thing, at least not very much. It's, it's more about the situation of a particular group of people in the United States. But yeah, I think what we do in our in our political discourse is that we try to make race stand in for a whole bunch of other things that aren't necessarily related to it and to make it a kind of, um, you know, category of the privileged and the unprivileged when it's a lot more complicated than that in reality. Well, that's the, indeed, that's the importance, I believe, of the topics about which you have written. That is, it's this disconnect you provide, I understand, uh, in this book, a really in-depth uh, expose of what is a socioeconomic situation that affects largely white people, a segment of white people, to be clear. And that description is in conflict with then the political discourse that we see regarding race, where we're told there are two groups and your group uh, is a subgroup of whites uh, that does not coincide with the political description of whites by leftists. And therefore, you're disadvantaged group, and by your, I mean simply the group you describe, uh, your group uh, is, is manipulated and disadvantaged by the false narrative. Talk about that. Yeah, well, the thing about the United States is it's a really big and complex country, and there are parts of the country that don't understand each other very well. You know, um, West Texas, where I come from, there are a lot of people there who really don't understand what life is like in, say, Los Angeles or New York City or Connecticut or Boston or someplace like that. And there are a lot of people in Philadelphia and New York and San Francisco who really don't understand what life is like in rural Arkansas or eastern Kentucky or rural West Texas or South Texas or, or South Dakota. And these countries don't, these parts of the country don't talk to each other very much. They don't share culture. They increasingly don't share things like news sources. And so they've got these very siloed and isolated views of the world, and they don't understand one another very well. But the thing is, the people who live in, in rural America tend to understand urban America a little bit better than the people in urban America understand rural America, because all of the newspapers, culture, entertainment, technology companies are pretty much all based in urban America. So people even outside of that silo get a pretty good look at it. What I've tried to accomplish with this book is to, is to return the favor in a way and to help people outside of the communities that I'm writing about understand what life is actually like there and uh, what's actually going on in these places. 
indeed, I remember when I went to law school, and I went to law school in New York City, and I didn't grow up in rural America, but I grew up in suburban America, which is not far from urban America. And yet, when we were discussing in one class, a property class, there are different laws that apply to your home, as you likely know. It's, it's a fairly common knowledge, that is, that sort of your home is your castle, and there's certain laws that apply only to your home that don't apply to you when you're in a different environment. And we started to talk about, well, what about mobile homes? And how does that relate? And, and the variety, right? You can have an RV. You can have a stationary mobile home. And mm-hmm. nobody in the class even had a clue. And I gave this small <laughs> exposition on what the differences are amongst the, the RVs, the mobile homes, etc. And literally, the class applauded me. Like somehow I had been dropped off from Mars uh, and was providing this new insight uh, that was no, nowhere otherwise attainable. And they were so grateful for that information. I grew up in suburbia. By the way, not even in rural America, but I didn't have this disdain for rural America or this blind spot for rural America that is so present in urban America. And it also reflected the fact, I deduce, that so much of this class that I was in was made up of people with no connection or knowledge of rural America. I was not amongst them, but I apparently was a rarity indeed. So this really is, I think, reflective of the theme of your book it's this disconnect what can we do obviously one thing we can do is read your book but what can americans do to better understand rural america yeah you tell that story about the rvs i'm being from from west texas but i come from lubbock which is a college town of about two hundred and fifty thousand people but i still get people in the rest of the country who assume that i you grew up riding a horse to school and that sort of thing. There you go. Texas, and they assume that it's, you know, cowboy stuff. And look at what there's a whole lot of big cities here as well. Um, people can do more to, to learn about the rest of the country by understanding that we all have biases. And that we all have biases that we are not necessarily aware of. And these biases affect what we consume in terms of news and media and books and entertainment. And the first step, I think, toward improving that is to understanding that you've got a limited worldview. Everyone does. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a dumb person. We've all got these built-in biases, and they have to be combated, and they have to be combated actively. You have to be thinking about them. And uh, one of the exercises that I like to do uh, a couple of times a year is think about you know what I think about in politics, what I believe is, is right and wrong about this or that in politics, and, and, and do a little exercise where I ask myself, what am I most likely to be wrong about? Well, what in this country is going on right now that I really know the least about, that I'm most likely to have false opinions about or false uh, assumptions about, rather, and then try to correct that? Um, but there's really no substitute for reading, I think, and I'm not saying that because I've got a book to sell. I don't think you really get very good, useful news for the most part if you're getting your news by watching cable television. Uh, I just don't think it's generally very helpful. You get a lot of kind of emotional performance, but you don't get a lot of actual information. So I would encourage people to just read as much as they can and to read things that they aren't used to reading, to go outside of their traditional comfort zones. All right, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, The book is Big White Ghetto. Kevin, uh, where can people uh, find the book and buy the book? Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any place where they uh, sell books.
All right, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. We need to take a break. Uh, You are listening to The Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. We need to get to some news and some traffic. But right now, here's a couple of messages from Dave. This is The Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave both today, Thursday, and tomorrow, Friday. Uh, Dave is taking a well-deserved vacation in Florida. On the line with me is Chris Corbett, an attorney a professional engineer in the Conway, Little Rock area, but he practices, needless to say, throughout the state and elsewhere. He's admitted to practice both law and engineering in various states. And hopefully in the near future, we'll be running for the legislature. And I look forward, Chris, to you being in the legislature. And one of the things that hopefully you won't need to address in the legislature, because it will have already passed now that John Cooper is no longer in the legislature doing the bidding of the left under the guise of being a Republican is stand your ground. You had sent me earlier a very interesting article about a stand your ground situation effectively. Uh, Tell us about that article, the events in that article, and then we can talk more about stand your ground. You bet. So in today's newspaper in the Arkansas section, there's an article about a young man uh, that was at a Little Rock restaurant here um, in Little Rock, uh, Twin Peaks. He's in there. He's having fun with his friends. He accidentally steps on a guy's shoe is what happened. He said, the, the, the article says he steps on Kentarius's shoe. All right. Um, Kentarius gets upset and threatens to whoop him because he stepped on his shoe. Darian, being apologetic and uh, you know uh, concerned about the man's shoe, even wipes his shoe off and decides that he's going to leave the restaurant because he's been threatened by Contarius. He leaves the restaurant, goes out to the parking lot. Contarius then chases him into the parking lot. Darian's in fear for his life. He's pled uh, self-defense here in the court um, and retrieves a pistol from his girlfriend's car, where he knows there's a pistol in the glove box that she uses for self-defense, Darian made the decision to pull that gun and shoot Contarius in the face and in the chest, thereby killing him. Terrible tragedy. Um, now, we don't know the background of these two individuals, but what we do know is that Darian had no criminal history. He was threatened. He retreated from the restaurant, and then he pulled a gun to defend himself and killed an individual. Now he's been charged with first-degree murder. That's the story. And um, if, in my opinion, we had a stand-your-ground law, Rob, this wouldn't even Mm -hmm. be brought as charges. This man, Darian, 21 years old, never charged with a crime, Uh, was threatened by an individual because he stepped on the man's shoe. He apologized. He wiped the man's shoes off. He left the restaurant out of fear for his life because the guy threatened him. He then gets into the parking lot, still trying to leave, is threatened again, and then decides not to retreat but to stand his ground and defend himself. Now, uh, unfortunately, the Arkansas law, and we've talked about it, Rob, he has to retreat. He has to retreat. He did retreat, but he didn't retreat far enough. All right, um, Chris, let's let's continue this story uh, when we uh, get out of the break. Right now, we need to hear what Rush Limbaugh has to say about the state of politics. So let's get to that right now. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave both today and tomorrow. We have on the line Chris Corbett, 
Uh, Chris, you were talking about this very interesting case of essentially stand your ground. So why don't you complete that story and then we'll talk about the underlying legal issue regarding stand your ground. Okay, yeah, so uh, basically uh, we've got Darian that defended himself in the parking lot with a 38 special, 38 special revolver, and um, unfortunately um, his defense of himself killed an individual. Uh, his name is Contarius Montrell, and uh, now Darian has been charged with first-degree murder, which is amazing. You know, uh, yeah, it's a, the first-degree murder charge is premeditated. He planned it out. Uh, I just the way the law stands right now, this is what we've talked about before, is that a prosecutor has the discretion to look at this killing in a defense, in a, you know, in a self-defense, and make 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 this choice of deciding to prosecute a man when he was obviously defending himself. He defended himself in the restaurant by leaving, by apologizing to the guy, by wiping his shoe off. Um, then he got into the parking lot. He's still trying to leave. He's been confronted a second time by this individual that's threatening to, to whoop up on him because he stepped on his shoe and it escalated into gunshots being fired. And, um, Actually, the, the story says there's a lot more rounds on the ground, which is very interesting. Who those rounds came from, there's a bunch of forty caliber casings on the Ooh. ground. As you well know, Rob, someone had a semi-automatic pistol there and fired 10 to 15 shots. Those shells landed on the ground. They were retrieved. The two shots that Darian fired stayed in the revolving pistol, which they have, they've retrieved. There's a thirty-eight caliber five-chamber revolver. Um had three remaining bullets in it. Um, so he only fired twice. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, the, the broader conversation, of course, you well recognize, Chris, is this notion of stand your ground. That is, when you are being attacked, you or someone around you is being attacked, uh, the law currently requires you to look around, spend time looking around, and if there is a possibility that you can run away, to run away. Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I think I've made this point over and over again. If I can run away from a gunfight, I'm running away from a gunfight. Meaning, as long as I and anybody around me who I'm trying to protect can get away safely, yeah. uh, I prefer that. I prefer not to be right. in a gunfight. It's perhaps not a controversial position. I don't want to be in a gunfight. But what I also don't want to do is risk my life or the life of others under the false claim that there's zero impact to me having to spend time looking around uh, for a possibility to flee because some leftist doesn't want to enact stand your ground, which simply says your right to self-defense means if someone's using deadly force against you, you're entitled to use deadly force back, period. You don't have an added burden. Right. This is not like the, 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 um, uh, the, the force, the dark side of the force, and what's the good side of the force? The, 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 the good side of the force? I don't know. The dark side the, of the force. The Jedis. <laughs> the Jedis, exactly. Remember, the dark side of the force uh, was said to be quicker, I think. Well, guess what? Right. Uh, I'm not leaving to the dark side the ability to more quickly kill me or those around me or others in like situations uh, because they get a benefit. And, of course, that was the right. simple notion behind Stand Your Ground that would have already been passed in the legislature if it wasn't for 
John Cooper uh, doing the bidding uh, of others, mind you, and holding up that bill to the surprise of virtually everyone. And that's not going to happen now right. because Dan Sullivan is now the s- senator from Jonesboro, and he's all for stand your ground, Ballinger, and um, oh, I'll think of it, the name, unfortunately, Aaron Pilkington. There it is. Aaron Pilkington in the House uh, were the two primary co-sponsors, I believe, amongst others, of stand your ground. So that bill is going to pass inevitably now and thank goodness for that it's really remarkable how leftist when you look at some of the laws still on the books in arkansas we are we don't have stand your ground and nearly 40 states in america have stand your ground so arkansas right right? arkansas is amongst the few leftist states with no stand your ground california has banned racial considerations in government action meaning government hiring uh public school admissions, uh, government contracts, they banned that 20 or 25 years ago. There was a referendum just on this, during this last election to repeal that. It lost, and yet Arkansas doesn't have a similar law. Dan Sullivan in the last session already introduced a bill to do that, and he will introduce that bill again. And so hopefully we can move this state into actual conservative ground because we have a lot of people claiming to be conservatives, a lot of people wearing the Republican label and banner, uh, but we don't have, we're missing a lot of the true conservative legislation that would aptly reflect a conservative state. And so we need to see our legislators do that. And hopefully in a few years, you'll be amongst them pushing for that goal. So what are your thoughts you, on Andrew Ground and, and the overall well, uh, state of affairs in Arkansas? Yeah. Well, this story here uh, and this first-degree murder charge against Mr. Moore for defending himself is the quintessential story that proves that this that this law should have been passed two years ago. This is not a right to murder somebody, as the as the opposing uh, legislators uh, thought that it is, and projected to the public that this is some the public that this is some sort of license to murder. And they created oh, you know that was a lie from the very start. To be clear, Chris, that yeah. was that was yeah. that was Cooper. Cooper literally said during the debate with Sullivan, "Well, I was the one that discovered." Uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah. if if Cooper had a magnifying glass and a hat with padded ears so that he looked like Sherlock Holmes, he wouldn't be able to discover the contents of what was in the Stand Your Ground bill. But I was the one that discovered in the bill this hidden provision, mind you. You know, it was like the... The, the the secret code he discovered this hidden provision that was a license to murder uh, and it's really yeah. so disingenuous it's just not the case and of course any good lawyer that read that bill uh, including bob ballinger one of the co-authors of that bill who is a lawyer knew that there was no uh, hidden code in this bill that allowed a license for murder that's just absolute nonsense yeah. What are your thoughts? It's crazy. Yeah, it's right. crazy, Rob, the way that this thing got shot down. It got um, – it got a, the lies that were told and the scenarios that were created, if you know, if a black man or a white man was walking down the street and you feel threatened, you could shoot him. 
because you don't have right. to retreat into your home or it's just not that's not what happens um the, the facts are that uh, the way this law stands right now is that you have to retreat before you can defend yourself and um you know what's interesting about this case uh, and it should be used it should be told this story should be told at uh you know some sort of committee meeting um this man retreated from the threat inside he did retreat exactly he retreated yeah he retreated to the parking lot he the second time he couldn't retreat he's trying to leave and let me give you one more fact yes the guy that he shot came out with his fraternity brothers he was outnumbered that's really remarkable but you know people like John Cooper uh, are, are searching for the Da Vinci Code hidden within the statute that he's going to use a codex uh, to decode to realize yeah. and expose this unseen language. You know what that is? Yeah, nonsense. And, 40, and forty other states, Rob. Forty other states right. have given people the the right to murder folks. Come on. According to Cooper, exactly. Yeah. Come on, man, as our good friend Come Joe on, Biden would say. Yeah. It's, I don't know taxes it's really money ludicrous. paid to me by China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh? What? Money? My son? <laughs> Meetings? Nothing to see here. Russian Russian conspiracy. So yeah, well, you always say, like, don't let facts get in the way. Don't let facts get in the way of a good opinion. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's really, uh, it's really uh, terrible um, how the press is so manipulated truth. You know, we'll, we'll, I'll start yeah. a, another story that I read in New York Times that we'll pick up after a break that I'm sure Heidi is yeah. going to bring us to uh, shortly. Sure. Uh, and there's a story that says. This is the headline. Get this, and then uh, I'll read a little bit of the text. Not for the substance, but for the slant. 17 Republican attorneys general back Trump in far-fetched election lawsuit. Now, if you think that's bad, wait till the first paragraph. Despite dozens of judges and courts rejecting challenges to the election, by the way, simply meaning that so far... Trump hasn't won. Republican attorneys general in 17 states on Wednesday backed President Trump in his increasingly desperate and audacious legal campaign to reverse the results. Desperate and audacious. Yeah, that sounds like news reporting, doesn't it? I, mean, it's, <laughs> I got 10 things to say, Rob. Well, now that's please. time to say them all. <laughs> well, the next paragraph says to show the show of support represented the latest attempt by Trump loyalists to use the power of public office to come to his aid as he continues to deny the reality of his loss with baseless oh, claims of voter fraud. Baseless. They have concluded that notwithstanding that the evidence that has been presented of at least some level of voter fraud are entirely yeah. baseless. But when it comes to describing uh, um, uh, Hunter Biden a completely anodyne description of what's going on. I didn't read the story uh, to you and the audience uh, how they described what's going on with Hunter Biden, but there's nothing there. There's no discussion about uh, what went on during the election. There's no dis in terms of how Hunter Biden was caught red-handed in these illegal allegations. You know, I think I, I need to go back to that Hunter Biden story to give you some of that anodyne language when compared to the story about these lawsuits that 
the, the press has concluded they are baseless, to be clear. Not that they may or may not win. That's the case every time you bring a lawsuit. That they are baseless. There's no there there. The press has concluded. And so, as you know, Chris, if the press says they're baseless, they must be baseless, right? And right. here's what they say about, got, about We've got some local. We've, yeah, we have a local case going on right now that would apply to the national uh, election of Trump. And that's exactly. Jim Servilio and Ashley Hudson. Uh, he's disputing 35, 32 disqualified ballots. These are mail-in ballots, Rob. And they're saying that Ashley won by 24 votes. The 32 disqualified mail-in ballots would have made the difference. They commingled them with the rest of the ballots, and they can't find them now. Isn't that interesting? That's a problem. That's a problem. I have no idea whether or not the election will turn out differently regarding President Trump, but that's a different statement than as to whether there were improprieties as well as changes in how voting operated that are potentially in violation of the law. And that's one of the issues being raised in that lawsuit. That's right. Let me put this in perspective, Rob. Mm -hmm. Mail-in ballots, okay? You need an ID to vote. You need to have an ID. These mail-in ballots were... There's no ID. If you didn't put the ID with them, then they can't verify them. Can I, can I mail in a, a purchase of a weapon? Can I mail in the purchase of alcohol? No, I need an ID. This is basic stuff. And now we're letting people vote without IDs. I, but, and it's some states, Rob, it's to, be clear, to be clear for the audience, some states yeah. said that they were counting these ballots, notwithstanding the absence of an ID, when ID was otherwise required. Heidi, is it time for us to take a break? Maybe maybe Heidi's taking a break. Well, we can continue yeah, so, to talk. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, Rob, this is uh, it's crazy. I, I've got a new perspective on the on the ballot fraud. Okay, when people would ask me, Rob, was there fraud? Absolutely, hundred percent. It's a fact. There was fraud. Second question. How much fraud, and was it a material? Was it materialistic? Was it material enough to make a difference? Now I think it is because of the mail-in ballots. All right, y'all. Let's let's finish this thought uh, after we take a quick break. Uh, We will be right back on the Dave Ellswick show. Our resident legal experts are talking right now. They are filling in for Dave. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett will be with you uh, for the rest of this hour and for the 6 p.m. hour tonight. We'll be right back after these messages on the Dave Ellswick show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. As usual, we have the brilliant uh, and the able Chris Corbett on the line. Chris Corbett is an attorney here in the Little Rock, Conway area. He's also a professional engineer. He practices throughout the state and in various states, in fact. Chris, we are talking about so many related topics, and I want to introduce another article that I read in the New York Times, all caveats apply, of course. Here's the title, and it's just, it's so emblematic of the problem that is leftist government throughout this country. New York needs to raise taxes, Governor Andrew Cuomo says. Of course they do. 
Oh. Right? Because New York State spends and spends and spends, and they figure, well, the more we spend, all we, you know, and we run out of money, well, how do, you, how do you resolve that issue, Chris? Well, you resolve that issue quite simply. After you spend, you tax. Because don't you know, money grows on trees. Those trees happen to be owned by hardworking Americans that live in New York. And so we just were picking the trees of those New Yorkers. That's all. Nothing to see here. No big deal, right? It's unlimited. Yeah. And it is this, unlimited. And this is one of the parts of the fight over the stimulus bill that Nancy Pelosi and the other leftists want to transfer money to these big spending leftist states. Wants to transfer our money to these big leftist, big government leftist states so that th- we can bail them out of their overspending. Now, does that seem oh, right? Rob, does that seem fair? Nancy's go got to go. She's got mm-hmm. to go. Have you seen her district, pictures of her district in San Francisco? She wins no. her race like 80%, 80% to 20. Every two years, she wins. And the only reason she's Speaker's House is because she's been there for 40 years or something. It's like Biden. Mm-hmm. This is not a good precedent to be setting up for her to be dictating to the rest of the country, um, which she has no clue about how the rest of the country is surviving and kicking. She's killing the American spirit, spirit, Rob. She's killing it. Well, you, you do raise an important point, which is, look, every district that has a representative is entitled, therefore, to representation. That's a tautology, but nonetheless worth saying. But the notion that uh, San Francisco is somehow reflective of most of the country, it's an outlier. That doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make them good, but it makes them an outlier. And they have outsized representation, outsized authority, uh, given the fact that Nancy Pelosi, that is, of course, is the Speaker of the House. That's how it works, right? If if French Hill were the Speaker of the House, uh, Little Rock would have outsized representation. I'm not saying there's something unique in that regard uh, for San Francisco, but the fact is that San Francisco has outsized representation given the fact that Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House and they are outliers. Their views are not the majority views in this country. And there's nothing we can do about that as long as the House is Democratic, because Democrats keep voting extreme left. I don't know why they don't vote for a more moderate Speaker of the House. All right, y'all, let's let's continue this conversation in the 6 p.m. hour this evening. Thank you for listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Right now, uh, we are going to go to Financial Issues Live. That's on from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are filling in for Dave today. So we'll be uh, back with you at 6 p.m. tonight.
This is the Dave Ellsworth Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. It is the 6 o'clock hour here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And if you heard any of this morning's show, we uh, were talking, Chris Corbett and I, and Chris is on the line as, as we speak. Uh, Chris Corbett, a local attorney and professional engineer, hopefully running for state office, come next term out of Conway, and we'll uh, get to that uh, later. But in any event... We were talking, needless to say, about politics. And the last thing that we had left off on, and I'd like to pick up in this evening hour with Chris, is, uh, pardon me, folks, so you hear the, the noise in the background. These are the vicissitudes of uh, working remotely. Uh, but in any event, uh, Chris and I were talking about how Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has announced that he will need to raise taxes. To be clear, That's not my locution. I don't believe he needs to raise taxes. I don't live in New York, uh, and so I'm not largely concerned about what he does to his local residents. But it bears on us, and it bears on us because all of these leftist states that overspend are coming now to feed at the federal government's trough as part of the bailout that they're seeking. And this is where the tension is in Congress right now. That is... Should we be bailing out leftist states for overspending? And, of course, the Republicans are saying no. I say no. And the leftists are claiming, oh, you see, the Republicans don't want to help out hardworking Americans. Uh, Excuse me? Pardon me? No, they don't want to bail out leftist politicians so that they can get reelected because they are uh, feeding at the federal government's teeth. And that is they are feeding at our tax dollars. Enough is enough. Chris, why don't you say a few thoughts on this? We, what's interesting, Rob, you made a great point. So a lot, of time, a lot of times things that happen in New York, the state of New York, and things that happen in the state of California, they tend to migrate across the country. And what's good for California and what's good for New York may not be good for Arkansas. It makes you think about this leftist crusade to do away with the electoral college. We are a republic, and states are free to do what they want to do. If their experiment fails, then they have to suffer the consequences. But yet what Cuomo's doing is wanting to go and have the rest of the country bail the state out. They're in trouble. He knows it. He sees it. He's got good, qualified uh, people around him. And they need some money. So he's put the he's put the, the feelers out that he's going to have to raise taxes. Um, you know, we recently had that here in Arkansas. And the voters voted it in, to my dismay, a tax into the Constitution um, in a referendum for, for state highways. And, you know, Rob, you and I have discussed taxes a lot. Um, do we need taxes? Uh, in some cases, Yes, but it depends on what it's for. Government has certain areas that it needs to run. The government needs to run the the criminal justice system. Um, I don't need to be building roads that everybody's using. A private entity doesn't need to be building roads. Um, The government needs to build roads. Uh, So we pass on those taxes to folks that are trying to, you know, that use the roads. The big truckers use the roads. They pay big tax on diesel fuel. And uh, so it's interesting, the fallout from this, the bailout that's going to be requested and lobbied for uh, through some of these states that are hurting, 
uh, is going to be enormous. And that's going to be on the backs of our children. They're going to be paying it back. And um, so we have to we have to scrutinize these things. We have to be careful of the the agenda and the ideas that are coming out of these leftist states from Nancy Pelosi and Cuomo out of New York. Um, it's just not what's good for Arkansas. That's exactly right. And that's why this is I spoke about at the very earliest hour of the show in the morning how the bureaucracy takes over. And the fact is, Dave, the fact is, Chris, that, do you know, that we still have not approved the distribution of a vaccine, but two other countries, Western countries have? How is it that we're third in line when, we're, when it's an American company that invented that vaccine? And, of course, the answer is bureaucracy, right? Yeah. And the same thing applies here. The bureaucracy... That is that exists in amongst many other places. New York State, big leftist state, is now coming with its hand open for a bailout from everybody else. It's really remarkable. I've seen it. I've worked in government for many, many years in one aspect or another. I remember this is years ago under a well previous administration. They got some money. I don't know where they got the money from tax dollars, i.e., or tuition, but they went and put uh, several flat screen TV sets up uh, in the law school, just by way of example. Now you might say, okay, big deal. Uh, they put them up in the hallways, and you know what shows on those? Like the weather, um, certain other <laughs> benign announcements. Now, I, right. was, I was talking with you, in fact, and today you can get a like 70, 80-inch flat-screen television set that is less than $1,000 unless you're getting the OLED. If you get the regular LED, right. you get for less than $1,000. Back then, they weren't, they, they weren't that price. Back then, they were several thousand dollars a piece. I would have never bought one for my, I didn't buy one for myself. I didn't own one. But we needed it up right. in the hallways of the school. Why? Because some bureaucrat that was spending your money decided, well, that's easy money to spend. That's the problem right there, right, is that the bureaucrats are very willing to spend money that is not theirs. And we see this throughout the state throughout the country, throughout the world. And that is the inherent danger of an ever-growing bureaucracy. And so, oh, well, you know, government's good, government has its role. Yeah, nobody says there should be no government. But the leftists, and wait for it, you're going to see it now happening uh, if and when Biden gets in office, uh, that they are going to increase spending more and more. By the way, to be oh, frank, be I have been... And then I'll, then I'll turn it over to you. To be frank, I have been less than pleased with Republicans as a general matter when it comes to spending. I think they spend too much. This bill, uh, excuse me, this proposal that became now part of the Constitution, as you m just mentioned, in which we are paying a permanent sales tax of half a percent built into the Constitution, going directly to an unelected branch of government, was a Republican idea, not a conservative idea. But a Republican idea. So, no, I don't support that. I don't support all of these uh, sort of ever-growing mechanisms uh, to ever-grow government. Both the mechanisms and government itself are growing because it is a, um, it is a parasitic environment in which government continues to leech on the people instead of working for the people. Go ahead, Chris. 
Right. I've got a – I think I can do it in a nutshell in a couple minutes. There's four categories of money, Rob. And everybody, the listeners, this is this is some pearls here that was dropped on me from a book and explained in a, um, a presentation. There's four types of money. There's my money for me. There's my money for somebody else. Okay, that's the first two categories. The next two is your money, Rob, your money for me, and then your money for somebody else. Now, let's think Mm -hmm. about that for a minute. Category one, my money for me. I care about what it costs, and I care about the quality. Okay, I want the lowest price for the best quality. Category number two, my money for somebody else. Lowest cost, I don't care about quality. I'm not buying it for me. I'm, on, I'm buying it for you, Rob. I don't care about mm-hmm. quality. Yeah, I care a little bit about quality, but not as much. Now let's go to category three and four. Number three, your money for me. I don't care how much it costs, Rob. I'm spending your money, and I want mm-hmm. the best quality I can get. And now let's move to category number four, the government. I'm going to spend your money, Rob, and I don't care about the quality because it's for somebody else. That is government. I'm spending your money, and I don't have any ties to the quality of the product that I'm getting. And that's a, that's a lot to digest, but that's essentially what Governor Cuomo is wanting you to do is spend your money on something with no care of quality. Now, we have the right to know where the other money went, but how do you do that? If you're going to ask for more money, where did the money go that you already spent? And what's the exactly. quality of the goods that you spend it for? I, it's a, it's outrageous to me, Rob, and, and, and people need to ask more questions. And uh, uh, these categories of money is a great way to think about it. Um, if I'm going to spend my money and I'm going to get the product for myself, then I'm going to care about the cost and I'm going to care about the quality. And that's how it needs to be spent. Now, Cuomo's not going to do that. Well, of course not, right? That's such an insightful way to look at things and why what you want for people in government is that they treat the government spending as if it's their own spending but inevitably they don't right right? because in part they use government spending to effectively pad their own pockets meaning they're not necessarily taking money under the table but the more they spend on certain constituents the more they can turn around when they seek uh, re-election to say, look what I gave to you. By the way, they didn't give yeah. you anything. They stole it from mm-hmm. someone else. The other person yeah. gave it to you. Yeah, and that's the, we can the we can make that, a, that you provide. Right? Yeah, we can make that analogy apply to you, to the flat screen TV in your in the law mm-hmm. school. Hey, I don't care what it costs, but guess what? I want the best quality because I'm spending your money. That's exactly right. Going to cost that's exactly gonna right. Cost a lot. That's exactly right. Well, of yeah. course, this is the the, the never-ending problem uh, with government is that it, it, there is a disconnect between incentives, and that's why true conservatives, unfortunately, there are a handful or more. There are a lot of Republicans right. who aren't necessarily true conservatives. True conservatives want to leave the decisions uh, in your hands as much as possible. That's the that's right. just and proper way to do things. Uh, But unfortunately, too often, we don't see that happening uh, with government. And even in government, that is controlled in one form or another by Republicans. And so that's the tragedy here. This is not a left 
excuse me, this is not a Republican or um, Democrat issue. This is uh, perhaps not even a left or right issue. It's a right or wrong issue. And that's what's the problem, is that some conservatives who are on the right are nonetheless wrong. And we need to That's see right. more commitment to spending less and spending responsibly. responsibly. Uh, and, you know, this is the inherent hypocrisy of the left, where the left says, well, you know, keep your hands out of the bedroom. Uh, keep your hands off me. Right. That's the, the mantra of the left. Yeah. And yeah. some of that. I believe, by the way, has some validity, meaning I don't think government should be telling you whether or not you're entitled to use birth control. No, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. But when it comes to abortion, that's a different issue because the left denies that there's any existence of a third party. And uh, that becomes increasingly (laughs) difficult throughout the pregnancy, doesn't it? So, uh, uh, but when it comes to having your hands on my wallet which is on my person by the way in my pocket the left says oh well we're free to do that wait a second what about what happened to your hands off mantra what happened to your belief that government shouldn't be messing with your life and their response is oh no 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 you see government's not messing with my life because i'm a lefty and i don't have any money so i don't care if government messes with a wallet because ain't nothing in my wallet they're messing with your wallet and when government messes with your stuff I don't have a problem with it. I only have a problem when the government messes with my stuff, says the lefties. And that's, yet again, the inevitable hypocrisy that we see um, in politics. And by the way, not only on the left. Sorry, not only on the left. Right. We see it on the right as well. And that's why just because someone has a Republican label doesn't mean they're a conservative. And we need to be ever vigilant in watching out for that. All right, y'all, let's take a break. Um, We will be right back in the 6 p.m. hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. Our resident law experts, Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett, are hosting for Dave right now as Dave is on vacation. We'll be right back with more on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave both today and tomorrow. Dave is on a well-deserved vacation we have on the line with us. Chris Corbett, attorney, professional engineer, Conway, Little Rock area, uh, hopefully running for office in the next election cycle. Uh, We need people like Chris in office uh, doing conservative work for conservative Arkansans. Uh, I want to mention one event that I mentioned on the morning show for everybody that may be interested. Tonight begins the holiday of Hanukkah, uh, and Hanukkah, Um, is the celebration of when the Greeks, excuse me, had attacked the Jewish temple and they broke the seal on the oil that was used in the lamp in the temple uh, on all but one vessel. Uh, The one vessel had enough oil only to last for one day, and yet it lasted for eight days. And, of course, that's the miracle that is celebrated, and hence the miracle of light. And what we do to represent that is we light eight candles uh, and, and uh, on a, what's called a menorah. It's a candelabra. And, uh, in fact, you can light it with little cups of oil and wicks to more accurately represent what took place in that uh, biblical time, effectively. 
and uh, we celebrate this miracle. Well, uh, starting tonight and for eight days, including tonight thereafter, on the corner of Chanel and Bowman, there will be a public lighting of a extra large menorah, sort of like a lighting of a, of a public tree. This is a lighting of a public menorah. So if you have time tonight around 530, uh, go by Chanel and Bowman. You can just drive by, give a little honk on the horn or flash your lights. Uh, or you are welcome, of course, to attend as well. Uh, and that will be every night. Uh, for the next eight nights. Uh, the only difference is tomorrow night, since tomorrow is Friday and that's the beginning of the Sabbath, it will take place at 3.15. But every other night uh, for the next eight nights, uh, 5.30 in the evening on the corner of Chanel and Bowman, you'll see a very nice lighting of a Hanukkah menorah. Chris, we're going to get into talking about the final story of the show, <clears throat> and that is there is this dean at the University of Colorado and because of the pandemic and the financial issues that um, pertain as a consequence, he is getting rid of 50 tenured professors. And he's, what's he going to replace them with? With adjuncts. An adjunct is a guy who's hired on the side, a guy who has a, another job and comes in and teaches on the side. They get paid far less, uh, multiple fold less. You might say, well, that's a great deal. Well, okay, yeah, it's a great deal if you want the, much like if the guy that's performing your surgery, he does it on the side. Do you want a surgeon whose, whose surgery is done on the side? Who does it every day, does it for a living? And that's what happens when you replace um, folks who, whose primary occupation is that of educator to people who, whose ancillary occupation at best uh, is educator. You're not going to get the same quality. And administrators across the country are replacing tenured faculty and tenured track faculty with adjuncts. Why? Because the administrators still get paid their inflated salaries. And the tenured faculty don't. More money for the administrators to play with and more control. So this is what you wind up with, folks. You wind up with a lower quality educational staff when you send your kids to college and a solidified leftist bureaucracy. I'm not interested in sending my kids to that school. I'll homeschool them all the way through college if that's the case. That's of no benefit to me. What are your thoughts on this, Chris? Oh, my gosh, Rob. I got it. I'm, outra I'm outraged. Now, I love universities. I love professors. What I don't love is administrators getting paid three to four times what professors are paid. Rob, it's, this is outrageous. If they're firing 50 tenured professors, then I think 100 administrators need to go. Double it. And the, there's your savings right there. Well, you raise a very good point, which is the number of administrators uh, in universities across this country has grown uh, significantly, exponentially, when compared to educators. Mm, so we, ha we have wow. an increase in growth in the number of bureaucrats and a decrease oh. in the number of professional educators. How can that be good for Rob, education? This, is this Boulder? Is this Boulder? Is this Boulder? Uh, University Boulder. of Colorado, it says. Yes, at Boulder. Yeah. That's correct. Oh, man. I'll tell you what. For every one professor that you fire, you, you're going to – only take a third of an administrator's 
salary. The administrators right. get paid in my in my naive research. Uh, administrators get paid three hundred thousand dollars a year. Professors are paid a hundred thousand plus. And what here's the, here's what's outrageous. Um, a lot of the professors that I know, Rob, um, they didn't want to move into the administration. They want to get more money. All they right, love Chris, let's continue they, that thought into the next yeah. uh, segment. We got to get to the news. Our resident legal experts, Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett, are filling in for Dave as Dave is on vacation. We'll be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. And one. This is Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave Ellswick today on the Dave Ellswick Show and tomorrow here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. On the line with us, of course, is the ever-present, uh, omniscient, perhaps, uh, Chris Corbett, attorney from Conway Little Rock area, also a professional engineer, and hopefully forthcoming candidate for the Arkansas legislature so that we can start getting more conservative ideals in that body. Yes, it's 75% plus Republican. It ain't 75% conservative, I'm sorry to say. Chris, we're talking about a phenomenon that goes on across this country and that is uh, near and dear to my heart because, as you know, I'm an academic. And we see this development in which administrators are replacing, getting rid of, firing, getting retirements from tenure and tenure track professors. That means, in other words, that's just a fancy word for saying full-time professors and replacing them with part-time professors, meaning people who have regular jobs during the day uh, and they squeeze out an hour here and an hour there to come in and teach at these universities. So they're part-time professors. And as I said before the break, would you want a part-time surgeon operating on you? Well, for the most part, I don't want a part-time professor uh, teaching me. I'm sorry. And I know there are going to be some people that are going to raise their arms up and say, you're insulting these people. I'm sorry. I'm not insulting the individuals. I'm insulting the system that seeks to diminish the notion that there is a professional career called educator and that we trust those people to provide education the same way we trust professional lawyers, not some sort of, I don't know, part-time lawyer, I don't know exactly what that would be, or some part-time doctor, I don't know what that would be, but somehow we can have part-time educators. Here's my question to all of those administrators across this country whose salaries haven't been cut, whose positions haven't been cut, but they cut the positions. Indeed, the number of administrators across this country has grown remarkably, uh, and their salaries have grown as well. And yet the, the salaries of faculty across this country have been sometimes cut, sometimes frozen, and the positions have been equally cut and frozen when the administrators seek to replace those permanent full-time employees, full-time professional educators with part-time educators who, by definition, are not professional educators. They're professional something else who decide to do it on, on, on the side, to decide to do education, to be clear, on the side. And my question to you is, Chris, hey, if I'm getting a part-time educator, can I pay a part-time fee? Can you reduce uh, that educator is now an educator 10% of his time. Can I pay 10% of the tuition? Is it, are you offering that to the students? What are your thoughts on that, Chris? You know, I, it, it's interesting, Rob. Um, I've got several thoughts. Uh, first is, <clears throat> yeah, there's some good adjunct professors out there. Um, there's some that are excellent. 
Uh, however, no this doubt. is not the path that universities want to go down. Um, I think that there may be some issues here with government funding. The universities get an enormous amount of government funding. And now they're saying that they've got to fire tenured professors. Universities, Rob, are the engine of creativity. They're the engine of invention, in my mind. Now, private uh, enterprise, yeah, they create stuff. But we are losing the American spirit. We're losing the ability for folks to go out and create and and get what they work for. Um, This is not a precedent that needs to be followed. I think the overall spending, this dean at the University of Colorado in Boulder, we need to look at his budget. We need to look at his salary. In the private world, they use this justification. Oh, well, they've got a $100 million budget. They need to be making a million dollars a year like in the private world. No. Yeah, that dean's probably got a million-dollar salary with a cush retirement, and he's firing the folks that are the front line of who meets and instructs the students. Um, this this is a, uh, an outrageous way to look at things and be cutting tenured professors. They, they need to look at cutting administrative salaries. You know, here in the state, a microcosm of that, in the public education system, Arkansas is the eighth highest paid administrators in the nation, and we're the 49th lowest in the, in the lowest paid teachers. That's just a microcosm of public education in Arkansas. Now, on the state university level, the same thing's going on. The universities pay their professors about a third of what the administrators are paid. It's outrageous, Rob. That's, you know, those, um, that's a really interesting observation that we are, uh, basically at the bottom of what we pay faculty, but yeah. near the top of what we pay administrators. That's right. I, Look it up. I've, it's dead on. Uh, there are about seven or eight deans of law schools across this country that have donated $100,000 or more back to their schools from their very generous salaries, by the way, during the pandemic. And wow, yeah. Here's the and and uh, when I uh, reflected that fact to some of my colleagues, they said, "Oh well, I doubt you would do that." I said, uh, 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 "Bull hockey, if I may use a radio term." I said, right. first of all, I wouldn't have that salary." I, uh, let me be clear: I have no interest in being an administrator in, in in significant measure because I have no claim that I would be a good administrator. Now, that doesn't mean that every administrator I see I think is a good administrator. I don't. I mean that across the country, and that's not some some, some yeah. sort of implicit critique of my institution. I mean, as a, as a general matter, I, I, see, I have seen a lot of poor administrators. But I don't believe that administrators should be paid more than 10% above, and I, frankly, I think I'm being generous, the highest paid faculty member. What, what, why are you getting? Why do you get paid double what a faculty member makes? What is what is so special about your job? Your job is to be a comptroller. Comptrollers yeah, in businesses right. don't get paid multiples of what uh, the other folks who work there do. That's yeah. the job of an administrator is to be a comptroller. Ten percent above, mm-hmm. I would cap the salary of all administrators. So. Would I become an administrator? And like I said, 
I'm not qualified to be an administrator, and I don't want to be an administrator. But would I become an right. administrator? I would not want more than 10% above the highest salary for a faculty member. And frankly, I think that's being generous. But nonetheless, that's what I would, you know, let, let's start somewhere what I would suggest to be modest. They make in the double vicinity now, double what the highest yeah. paid salary uh, faculty member makes. Why? Explain that to me. Now, by the way, that's on the low end across this country. On the low end, administrators make double what the faculty members. Like you said, often triple, and there are many institu- uh, in- instances rather where they are uh, eight times, ten times what faculty members make. Explain that to me. Yeah. Oh, well, they could go Rob, here or there. I, go ahead. It go goes ahead. even farther than that, Rob. Let me tell you, their staffs are bloated. I was just recently looking at a University of Arkansas publication on the engineering department. There was some kind of fundraiser. It was, I, I mean, I came up out of my chair. Provost, assistant vice provost, the vice provost, the assistant to the vice provost, all had donated. All of these administrators are making over a hundred grand a year. Some of them making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, I just want to. I want to go into their offices. I want to sit and see what they do every day. I, it's outrageous, Rob. The, the salaries um, paid to these administrators is bloated, and yet they want to go and fire tenured professors. Well, and, and the key is less. The fact that they're tenured or they're tenure track, whatever the case may be, that is a reflection of the important point. And that important point is if you're sending your kids to college and you send them away, your daughter has gone away to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. She's gone away there. Right. She spent her life there. And then you're going to have somebody drive in on a Tuesday afternoon to come teach her and then go back to the factory or the law firm or the accounting firm or whatever it may be that person works at and then do their quote job, their regular job. I don't know when you send your kid away to an institution. And by the way, you pay full tuition to send your daughter to that institution and you're getting a part-time professor. Is that what you're paying for, Chris? You're a taxpayer and you're a tuition payer because you're paying that tuition. Tell me, is that what you think you should be paying for? Heck no, Rob. I I want quality. Just like my four categories of money, it's my money and it's being spent on my family. I want uh, good quality education for the money I'm spending. Now, if I'm spending government money, who cares how much it costs, right? That's where right. Yeah, I'm saying it facetiously. Yeah, but that's why a lot of these um, uh, institutions are bloated because they get a lot of government money, and they spend it on these on these administrative positions: administrator, vice administrator, assistant to the vice administrator. I, I you know, Arkansas uh, Business did a fantastic article on it. Um, uh, Gwen did, and uh, they were crickets. No one said anything because there's an army. Of government administrators out there, Rob. There's an army of them. Oh, well, you raise a very important point, Chris. Yeah, you raise a very important point. This is not only in academia. We see it perhaps at times more obviously in academia, and I see it more because I'm in academia. But this is across the board. Now you're giving a half-cent sales tax directly to the highway department. Uh, Why don't we check back in two years? I guarantee you the following. Their administrator 
uh, ranks are going to be uh, bloated. Bloated. I guarantee it. Yeah. Mark my words today. In two years from now, the highway department that is collecting a half cent from every dollar you spend in Arkansas is going to have a bloated administration in two years' time. That's all. That's all. With no legislative oversight, Rob. No legislative oversight. Well, I think one of the things that the... I, I think the legislature should insert itself as much as it can uh, by, first of all, uh, they're getting money from the tax. They don't need any other money. They certainly don't need any money from the legislature. They're getting more than enough money from the tax. Uh, and then I have to pass certain laws about how money should be spent. Now we'll see what happens with that. That'll result in a challenge where some unelected bureaucrat is going to sue the legislature. Uh, and then right. uh, we'll see what the Supreme Court has to say about that. But it's an awful yes. tax. It's an awful idea. It's in the Constitution. It was it was uh, presented unfairly uh, to the public, but the public also didn't uh, pay enough attention, and they voted for a bad idea. It's a bad idea, and it, just because it got elected doesn't mean it's a good idea. It's a it remains a bad idea. Right. You well, might. That's why you know we what, need, Rob. You may have just. You may have just that may be a lawsuit right there. The the co- Congress has to have the, the 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 spending power. It's the purse, right? Holds the purse strings. But in this situation, yeah, but not if you change gone. it in the Constitution, <laughs> right? The Constitution is the right. ultimate authority, and that's why they put it in the Constitution yep. because the Constitution right. is the ultimate authority, and the only way around that spending uh, 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 protection was the. Um, uh, the, the Constitution provision that says yeah. that the legislature is in charge, and what did they do? They took they took that away. They replaced it with a wow. provision in the Constitution that says the, that the, right. the the um, uh, the, uh, uh, the basically that the highway department is in charge. You realize this, Chris? The highway department is in charge of your money. The highway department <laughs> is in charge of your taxes. Not the legislature. Not the people you vote for. A bunch of unelected bureaucrats are in charge of your money. Yeah. Can you explain that to me? Not I, a I'm good looking situation. for an explanation. That's not, not a, a good, good situation, situation Rob. Right. Yeah. And, and the same thing goes in in this instance. We happen to be talking about academia, and the same thing goes on in academia, in which you have uh, a bunch of unelected administrators uh, seeking. And now this is across the country. Before we were talking about Arkansas, but seeking yeah. to diminish the ranks and the role of full-time academics and replace them with part-time academics, but they ain't giving you a discount on your tuition. Do you think the quality is the same? You tell me. Right? I go to an eye doctor uh, I, when I want my eyes checked out. Yep. I go to a um, uh, an accountant when I want my taxes done. I don't go. Uh, I don't go to the neighbor. I don't go to a part-time. I don't go to the neighbor who, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, he runs a pizza business, let's say. I don't ask him to do my taxes for me. Why? Because I ask a professional to do it. So, All right, y'all. Uh, let's uh, yeah. let's finish up uh, in the last segment of the show. Uh, you are listening to the Dave Ellswick Show, the 6 p.m. hour. Our resident law experts, Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett, are hosting the show for Dave right now while he is on vacation. We will be right back after these messages on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave. This is the last segment in our 6 o'clock hour here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And before we sign off, I want to thank Chris Corbett for being our guest. I want to thank Heidi, the producer, for doing such an excellent job in trying to rein me in, which is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, and we are finishing up our conversation, Chris, about how important it is to have professional educators providing education and you relate to me during the break how you know someone who teaches part-time and how it's not the same talk about that tell me what you told uh, tell the audience dave's audience what you told me during the break i, I tell you I, I looked into it i said hey you're you're an adjunct professor well that sounds neat well how much do they pay you it was for one semester they taught a class from six to nine one day a week for 16 weeks. So for three hours of instruction per week for a semester, added up to 48 hours, Rob, and he was going to get paid $3,000 to teach that class. And uh, when you do the numbers, Rob, $3,000 divided by the 48 hours you're in class, it comes out to about $60 an hour in pay. Now, that's good pay at an hourly rate, but you cannot just walk in there and teach a class. You've got to prepare for that class to be an effective professor, to be an effective teacher. So you've got to spend some out-of-time class, I'd say a minimum of two hours for each hour of instruction. So that cuts your, your rate, your wage, to about $20 an hour. From $60 an hour to $20 an hour is what you're paying the adjunct professor or what the administrators are going to end up paying them per hour to be an effective professor. And it's just not going to work out. Those professors or these adjuncts are are not paid enough to do a good job well in fact you told me during the break that that's not exactly what happens what did your friend tell you given the pay that he's receiving uh, about his pre-class preparation oh i asked him that i said you're going so you're going to get paid 60 dollars an hour for, for 180 bucks a week to teach a class once a night he said no i'm not going to prepare outside i'm not paid enough to go do that i'm just going to go there and show up and talk about work or apply some of the things I've learned and hopefully give the, to give the students what they paid for. In the end, so Rob, indeed, the students yeah. aren't going aren't gonna to get what they paid for. Indeed, right, because there's no discount on the tuition. They get a part-time teacher no. who doesn't prepare for class often, not always, and uh, they're paying the same tuition when they're the full-time teacher. So That's when right. you're con considering to send your kids off to uh, expensive college, and by the way, all college is expensive. Some are more expensive, oh, yeah. but there ain't no well, cheap college. Rob, how many? How much is it per semester hour now for a law degree or a professional degree? Uh, yeah. $150 an way, hour per semester? Here at, here at Bowen, we're one of the most reasonably priced, and it still ain't cheap. It's just right. far less expensive than some of the really, really expensive ones. But it ain't cheap. It's real yeah. money. Uh, and the same thing with the university, where, where your daughter goes. She goes to Fayetteville, and it's a public school, so it's not nearly as expensive as, say, Vanderbilt. But right. it's, it ain't cheap. You're paying those bills every, no, every semester. Cheap. That's right. So it's really disingenuous when there's uh, the, these folks, uh, these administrators across the country, uh, are continue to rake in their salaries. I've seen no cuts in administrative administrator salaries uh, to speak of, uh, but they cut the faculty and replace them with part-time 
non-professional by definition educators yeah. and they expect the same outcome? I don't know if they expect the same outcome. They may be well, even more cynical than that, not even expecting the same outcome. But I'm not particularly enamored nor desirous of sending my children off to university and pay high tuition bills if I know I'm going to get a guy who's going to step out of his office for two hours or come after work one day a week to come teach a class. Well, I can teach that. I can do that. <laughs> right? Well, Rob, the ugly I, truth is... Yeah, the ugly truth is an administrator took out his calculator and said, how can we save money? We will hire, we'll fire the tenured professors and hire an adjunct and pay them a third of what we're paying the oh, tenured it's professors. It's even less than a third, to, to be clear. And there sometimes you, you hear You're right. complaints. No benefits. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes you will hear complaints. Oh, you know, you professors have it easy and you only work, you know, X number of hours a week because they only count up the hours that you're in class. Well, of course, oh. there's a lot more than that. There's prepping for class, Much as you more. point out, uh, two to one uh, in terms of the hours. There's other work. We have to yeah. write scholarly articles. We have to do what's known as service projects. But by the way, if you think it's an easy job, knock yourself out. Maybe you should apply for one. Okay, I'll nice. tell you what job Way it is easier, right? right? I'll tell you what job it is yeah. easier than bricklaying. Uh, bricklaying, that's some hard work. Uh, yeah. uh, that's, uh, I've heard the story from you, Chris. You, you did bricklaying yeah. for one summer. You said, I'm going to professional school. So I'm not saying it's uh, the hardest job in the world. I don't want to be a bricklayer. It's too hard for me. I'm not strong enough to be a bricklayer. But to say that we work such and such hours a week because only you've only added up the number of hours in the classroom reflects the fundamental misunderstanding, uh, which is perpetuated by administrators, uh, that the only thing that professors do is wake up and show up in class and uh, lecture in class and then go home and do nothing else. That is nonsense. All you right, Robert. Thank you yep. so much for hosting the show today for Dave Ellswick. Uh, we will see you tomorrow morning, Friday morning. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you are listening to the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. We will see you guys tomorrow morning, 6 a.m.